So I'm excited to get back into our verse-by-verse study of God's Word and picking up here in 2 Corinthians. Why don't you stand with me? Let's read the opening verses here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So Lord, we ask that you would bless your word as we look through it. May we look to you, God, to see all that you are to us. And would you just continue to strengthen and comfort your church here today, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And so as we get back into Corinthians, we're not going to do a big kind of intro to you know, the context that we're looking at, if you weren't with us in our study through 1 Corinthians, I encourage you to take some time this week and look at the first uh, study in 1 Corinthians 1 that we did back, I think it was in, in March, and just to kind of get a bit of the history of the city, which is very interesting, um, you know, who the people were, how the church was founded. The church was founded by Paul, of course, on a second missionary journey as he traveled to Corinth and he had an extensive ministry there, a year and a half, long, uh, the second longest of any of his stays in the cities. Usually Paul was kind of in, out, planted a church, passed it on to somebody, and he's moving on to the next city. Paul was just such a, a pioneer. But here in Corinth, he stays for a year and a half, uh, you know, second longest other than Ephesus where he stayed for three years. And so it's in Corinth. Corinth was a, a, a interesting city, a Greek city, uh, had quite a, a history. But what was going on in the day here now in Corinth was it was quite an immoral city. They had the temple to Aphrodite up on the Acro uh, Corinth there, the hill up in the city. And uh, the worship of Aphrodite involved sexual immorality. There was a thousand uh, temple prostitutes that would come down each night and make themselves available to the people in the city as acts of, of worship to their goddess Aphrodite. And so within the city of Corinth is a very immoral, sinful city. It's like the original sin city, all right? Las Vegas had nothing on Corinth. And so like we saw last week, we've been here before. These are all things that we've seen uh, developing throughout history. But Corinth was also a very wealthy city. It was an intellectual city, a Greek city, like I said, major trade route running through it. So there's a lot going on in Corinth. But now because of that, because of the kind of culture that was going on, here's Paul planting this church. Now that church was definitely filled with believers who were tracking with the Lord, but were also being influenced by the things going on in the culture and in and around the city. And rather than the church having a greater influence on the city, the city and its culture began to have a little too much influence in the church. Just like, you know, a boat is made to go on the water, but once you get some water in the boat, that's not a good thing. That's kind of what was happening in the church at Corinth. So Paul is having a right to address several things going on. First Corinthians is, is just that. He's looking to address some things that are happening, issues of sin, various questions that the church had about theology and, and, and whatnot. But now in Second Corinthians, Paul's having to write again, having to address some things, but this time it's not so much centered specifically 
on those things that he's already addressed. Now he's dealing with false apostles that have come into the church that have sought to discredit Paul. Sought to kind of say, oh, Paul's not your guy. No, we're the people you should really be listening to and following after. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians is writing to basically look to um, defend his conduct, his character, and his calling as an apostle. And this letter becomes one that's kind of the most heartfelt letter that Paul wrote. It's, it's his most autobiographical letter. We really begin to see kind of that humanity of Paul and just his heart being laid open. Someone has said, Corinthians is so vital to us. Conditions haven't changed much. Many of the problems that confronted the Corinthians plague present day believers as well. Living wisely for God is not easy in the midst of a sinful and materialistic age, but Corinthians is filled with valuable and important lessons which are so essential for our walk with the Lord. Someone also said that the letters of Paul take the roof off of the early churches and let us see what went on inside. Of none of them is that truer than the letters of Corinthians. And not only do we see the roof kind of lifted off this early church and get a, a, a real bird's eye view as to what's going on in the early church here, but now in this letter, we really see the, the, the roof lifted off of Paul's heart as he begins to lay open some of his own and share his own personal uh, affliction and adversity that he was going through and a lot of it that he was going through at the hands of these false apostles that had come into the church. So here's what we're going to look at as we go through the next several weeks in, in 2 Corinthians. We're going to see this, this book outlined uh, in these three ways. Paul explains his ministry, chapters 1 to 7. Paul encourages their generosity, chapters 8 and 9. And Paul enforces his authority, chapters 10 to 13. Or you could uh, break it down these three words, consolation, collection, and correction. That's kind of how we're going to be seeing this book. Now, remember, before we get into this, remember kind of the, the flow that's going on here in Paul's correspondence to the church in Corinth. Because though this is seen as 2 Corinthians, it's actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And 1 Corinthians is the second letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. Confusing, isn't it? Yes, I know. Let me break it down for you this way here. William Barclay lays out the following kind of, of flow and scenario of Paul's uh, visits and correspondence to the church here at Corinth. So we see that Paul first came in, founded the church in Corinth. Acts 18 lays that all out for us, okay, on his second missionary journey. So you can read Acts 18 to get some of the background again. And then he writes... Uh, a first letter, which is referenced in 1 Corinthians 5.9. Not 1 Corinthians. No, it's an original letter. 1 Corinthians 5.9 talks about this letter he had sent. And then we see the second letter is written, which is 1 Corinthians, in response to those from Chloe's household that brought word to Paul in Ephesus of concerns that were going on in the church. And so Paul looks to answer those questions throughout 1 Corinthians. And then he makes uh, another visit. And this is a, a pretty painful one. It's, he had a you know, come and, and bring some, some correction and, and rebuke. A, a third letter followed, which was very severe in tone. And then he writes this fourth letter, which is Second Corinthians, the one that we're going to be studying. And then he, he talks about making a, another, uh, a third visit there to the city. So that's kind of a, a bit of the background. And so Paul's got a real heart for the people in Corinth. And he starts out here in verse one, simply saying, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God <coughs> and Timothy, our brother. <coughs> Timothy isn't co-writing this letter with him. Timothy's just 
with Paul. He's been a companion, been a great help and blessing in the ministry. So he includes Timothy in the greeting to the church. And every letter starts out by identifying who the writer is. It's Paul. But notice he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And that's important because like I said, false apostles are in the church there. They're looking to stir the hearts up of the people away from Paul making Paul seem like he's not qualified. He's not a real, you know, I mean, there was a lot of weaknesses that you could identify with Paul. People said he was, you know, kind of uh, uh, short and, and just sort of funny looking and, and he wasn't like a, a powerful communicator. So there were people that were looking to say, this guy's not really, you know, an apostle. Uh, but notice this, Paul again is defending himself. He says, listen guys, I'm not an apostle because I thought, I would be so good as an apostle. I wasn't taking some kind of aptitude test to see what I would really qualify for or what kinds of careers would really work well and mesh with me. Paul didn't do any of that. He says, I'm not an apostle because I chose to be. I'm an apostle because it's by the will of God. He's called me in the whole road to Damascus conversion that Paul experienced. It was Jesus that met him, saved him, and called him into the ministry. So Paul could say confidently, I'm not an apostle because I've self-identified as one, as some would like to do today. Don't listen to that. Paul was an apostle because Jesus called him, and it was very evident. This wasn't something that he's called himself to do. And that would have given Paul, I think, great confidence in all the adversity and struggles, and we're going to talk a lot about those as we go through 2 Corinthians, but that would give Paul wouldn't it a lot of confidence when trials are coming, when difficulties are coming? Paul can't sit back and go, man, maybe I just chose the wrong career path here. What was I thinking? I, who am I? I shouldn't have been doing that. He could sit back and go, you know what? God's called me and God's going to be with me and God's going to lead me through as Paul is has seen happen time and time again to see God come and deliver him, strengthen him, help him, save him in situation after circumstance, after trial, after adversity. Paul's experienced it all and yet he's seen the goodness of God and it would give him great confidence. And I, I pray that we all can have that same kind of confidence. Not that we can sit back and go, oh, I'm called to be an apostle, but what has God called you to do. And maybe it's not so much knowing concretely what God has called you to do, but we can all say concretely what God has called us to be. And he's called us to be witnesses of him, to be shining our light bright for him, to be living as examples of Christ in this world and to take the gospel into a lost and dying world. And we know that as we go and do that, whatever happens to us, we can confidently go on because we know this is what God has for us. And whatever setback I might encounter doesn't mean that, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. No, we just get to experience the, the help of God in those times that keeps moving us forward in what he has for us. And so Paul would experience that great sustaining work of the Lord through all those hardships. And Paul's communicating these things to the church here. Notice he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. And so Paul's reminding them again, listen, you guys are the church. Now they might have felt at times like, oh man, we're, we're, not, we're not a good church. Man, Paul's having to rebuke us, uh, challenge us. He's having to correct us on things. Man, we're not being, a, but yet Paul says, no, you're not, you know, seeking to be, he says, you're the church. You're the, the church of God, which is at Corinth. And so continue 
to live like that church of God that's called out, called out from the world, called out from all that's going on in Corinth, called out to be different, called out to be those that are representing God. You're the church. He doesn't say, try to be the church. He says, you are the church. And not just you're the church, but you are also with all the saints who are in all the KI. That's pretty awesome. Because again, we can think sometimes like saints are those that have you know, gone before us and they've proven themselves in some real special spiritual way. Like this is some kind of special task force of spiritual elites, right? And we think, oh man, I'm definitely not a saint, right? We can all think, or you're thinking that of the you know, person you're sitting beside probably, oh, they're definitely not a saint. No, I'm not saying that, but you know, we can think of our, of this sainthood as something that's so unattainable. Yet Paul says to the church of Corinth, you're saints. You're saints, why? Because a saint, again, simply means that you're called out. You're set apart, set apart from the world and set apart to God. In other words, all those that are in Christ are saints. If you are in Christ today, you are a saint because you've been set apart from the things of the world and you've been set apart to God. You are in Christ. A saint doesn't rely upon your status of spirituality. It's relying upon who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. And so again, this church now is being reminded, hey, just as Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle, you're called to be the church, to be saints that are living differently in the world. And then he says this in verse 10. I love, this is a, the, the common greeting that Paul gives in, in all those letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. This is a common greeting because grace was the, the typical uh, Greek greeting, charis, and peace was the typical Hebrew greeting, shalom. Now you'd think Paul, being a good Jewish boy, why wouldn't he start with peace? Why wouldn't he start out with his own language and say, peace to you and grace? He always puts in this order, grace and then peace. Why is that important? I think Paul intentionally puts in this order because he recognizes nobody can experience the peace of God until they've come to know the grace of God. And I'll tell you, the grace of God is a powerful, wonderful, beautiful thing that I think it, it took me, and I've shared this before, it, it took me a long time in my Christian life to really comprehend the amazingness of God's grace. You see, if you don't understand the grace of God, which means you're saved, not because you're a good person, you're not saved because you've earned salvation. You're saved because Jesus has done it for you and you put your trust in Jesus. You're saved by his grace, which means you didn't deserve any of it. You didn't earn it. It's been given freely to you. And when you begin to understand the magnitude of grace that I'm in Christ saved, not because of what I do, but because of what he's done for me, then you begin to walk in the sweet peace of God. And there are people that are, are wrestling through their salvation, wrestling through wondering if I'm saved. I ask people all the time, whether they're Christians or not, are you going to heaven when you die? And they'll say as Christians oftentimes, I hope so. <laughs> Guess what? Not a lot of peace there. I hope so. That's not confident. There's no peace. But when they suddenly realize, and the reason it's hope so is because they are wondering, have I done enough? 
Have I, have I done enough to earn salvation in heaven? But when you kick grace in and you go, oh, wait a second, it's not by what I do, it's by what's been done to me through Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can confidently with assurance say, I'm saved and going to heaven because Jesus has done the work. And when you can say that, guess what? You walk in the sweet peace of God knowing, ah, I'm his. I'm a child of God and I'm going to heaven. He's promised me that. And all those that are in Christ have that assurance. So Paul says, grace to you and peace. And it's from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're not experiencing that grace or peace, then look to the one that supplies it all. It's in our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul moves on in verse three to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So here's Paul now, and though he's been through trial and adversity, persecution and, and suffering, notice what he starts out as saying, oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He stops and just gives praise to God. Again, his worship of God is not dependent on his circumstances. His worship of God goes beyond that because of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. We always have reason to praise him. And when he says blessed, he's using this Greek word eulogitos, which is where we get our word eulogy from. And eulogies are what we give at a funeral where we share all the good things about that person. We really want to kind of you know, lift them up and just kind of praise those people for all they've done. And so here's Paul now lifting up God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all praise. And God revealed himself, notice this, in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here now, it's referred to as God, our Father, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in those three titles, Lord Jesus Christ, we see God's sovereignty, the Lordship. We see his redemption available to us in Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh who saves, salvation is in Yahweh. And we see his promises that he's delivered to Christ who is the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one. So we see God's sovereignty, his redemption and his promises. Now, Paul was more than happy to direct all praise to God because notice he says he was the father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul's experienced this time and time again and we have experienced this too. Aren't you glad for the mercies of God? The mercies that are, are new every morning. You know, if God were to be just, we'd all be out of here. <laughs> We wouldn't, we wouldn't be meeting today. We'd be goners, man. But God, in his justice, shows mercy. Doesn't condemn us, doesn't judge us. That's been meted out on the cross in and through Jesus Christ. We're spared. We've been shown mercy in and through Jesus Christ. And notice it says, he's a God of all comfort. The comfort of God is continually available to us. Notice, I like this here. It says he's the God of 
all comfort. I want you to take special note of that. The question is, where do you go for comfort? See, we all have things that can provide a semblance, a semblance of comfort, right? I'm sure there's things that we like to go to where it's like, man, I'm just sort of, oh, I'm just sort of shaking out. I just, I need, I need comfort. Maybe it's nice chocolate. That's my, that's my comfort, chocolate. Maybe it's staying in bed, you know, two, five, eight hours after the alarm goes off. I don't know. And just like, I don't want to face the day. I'm just going to have some comfort right here. I mean, it's that, you know, cup of coffee in the morning. We all have things that provide a semblance of comfort. But true and lasting comfort comes from God and not just some comfort, not just comfort for certain things, not a, a percentage of comfort. It says that he's the God of what? All comfort. And that word all in the Greek is special. It means all. <laughs> Every bit of comfort we need is found in the Lord God. And that word comfort is a great word. That word comfort right here is the Greek word um, parakletos. Can you guys see that okay? Parakletos, which means to call to one side, to encourage and to strengthen by consolation and comfort. Remember when Jesus was referring to the, the Holy Spirit, when the disciples were freaking out, Jesus, you can't leave us. Jesus says, no, I'm gonna send another helper. Or, as he said, parakletos, which meant comforter. I'm gonna send a comforter to you. So this word is greatly linked to, in the Greek, the Holy Spirit. And you see, this was something that was so foreign to the Greeks. Is, again, Corinth is a Greek city, many Greeks there. That was something that the Greeks were like, a God who comes alongside to comfort? See, their concept of their gods, their false gods, was that their gods were constantly angry with them. And they were constantly doing whatever they could just to appease the wrath of their gods. When calamity came, people ran away from the gods thinking, oh my goodness, it's our gods. They're after us, run and hide. But now to hear of a God who comes alongside to encourage you in adversity and affliction, that was something they're shocked over, going, wait a second. I gotta, I gotta pause on that a little bit. I gotta, I gotta get my mind wrapped around that. That's so foreign to us. This was amazing to hear. And that's the God that we serve, that we don't run away from in time of trouble. He's the God that we run to. The question is, is see your first retreat or see your last resort? Because oftentimes we're looking at all the other things that we tend to think is gonna provide us some of us a comfort rather than going first of all to the God of all comfort. Why waste time? Just get right to the source of it all. And God is the one that does that for us. So he's the God of all comfort because notice this, he comforts us in all our tribulations. Well, wait a second, Lord, what about what about this circumstance? What about that tribulation? What about this kind of thing? All our tribulation, no, no, hold on. What about when spouse is really just laying it hard on you and you're going through, per what about all tribulation? What about when my car won't start and I'm late for what? He's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all 
our tribulation. Now here's something that's gonna stand out in our study through 2 Corinthians. We're gonna go through and experience tribulation. Our, our title today is Fellowship of Suffering. I didn't lay that out beforehand because I'm sure half of you wouldn't come. <laughs> like, no, I don't want to hear that message. Fellowship is suffering. <laughs> but you see, here's the thing that we have to grasp as believers and, and as followers of Christ is we're not immune from suffering. We've never been promised to be exempt from trials and tribulations. We would think, given our life to the Lord, and maybe some of you at one point <clears throat> thought, I'm gonna try Jesus. Maybe he'll take care of all my problems. And we think, this is what I, I need. And we turn to Jesus thinking that now, all my suffering is gonna go away. He's never promised that. In fact, he himself came as one of us, and he suffered greatly. But here's what he did do. He took care of our greatest problem, which was sin. He's forgiven us that we could have life in him so that we could experience the blessed peace and grace and comfort of our God now today. But it doesn't mean that we're not gonna go through trials. In fact, trials serve a purpose. We're gonna talk a little bit about that here as we continue on. But we understand that we're comforted in all our tribulation. Now that word for tribulation is an interesting one. The word in the tri for tribulation in the Greek is, can you guys say that? Philipsis. All right, sounds like you got lists, but that's all right. Philipsis. And what that word philipsis means is it means a pressing or a pressure. See, in this day in, in Roman culture, if they caught someone that, was, that they perceived to be bad and they wanted to get information out of him, they would lay that individual down, they'd place a board over his chest and they'd roll a large boulder upon that person's chest. And as a person would struggle just to get breath in, every breath that he let out, that weight became heavier upon him to where he was unable to get any breath in. It would just be a pressing pressure upon them. I'm sure... Many of you have felt like that at times. You think of those with, you know, that deal with anxiety and what happens? This, this panic comes over you to where it's like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. There's that pressing and pressure that hits us oftentimes. But here's the thing. God is saying that he's here to be that comfort in all our pressure and pressing in all our tribulation. So God wants to do and, and be for us. Paul would say in the next chapter, I mean, we're gonna be here in a few weeks, but look at chapter four, verse eight. Just flip over a, a page or two. Second Corinthians four, verse eight. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. I'll stop right there. He says, man, we're, we face that. Paul the apostle not by his own will, but by the will of God. He went through times of being hard pressed, but what does he say? But we were not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. It didn't destroy them, why? Because God was with them. He's the God of all comfort that comes alongside them. Paul experienced the presence of God that led him through, delivered him, kept him safe in the times of pressing. God wants to be that comfort to us 
in those times. But like I said, why do we need to go through trials, tribulations? What purpose do they serve? Well, this passage reveals a couple of reasons. First of all, that we may experience, if you're taking notes, I, I hope you are, write this down, that we may experience God's comfort. I'll just put why here. Why do we go through trials? That we may experience God's comfort. See, when we're weak, we begin to experience his strength and his comfort. Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 4.10 that those things were happening. He's, he's hard-pressed, he's, he's crushed, persecuted, but those things happened so that Jesus might be manifested in their lives all the more. We know that tribulation and trials bring about greater godly character. Romans 3, uh, sorry, Romans 5, verse 3 to 5 says this, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, trials build in us a greater godly character that causes us to reflect him all the more Amen. and to experience his comfort. How shallow would we be if we never experienced pressures and trials? I'm already shallow enough with the pressures and trials I do encounter. I can't imagine what my life would be like without these character building experiences in my life person that wants to work out and get strong, what do they need? They need some resistance. They need some pressure mounting to build up that strength. And then we would be just a bunch of softies weeping and wailing over every little bit of adversity if God didn't build in us through philipsis, through tribulations, trials that build in us what we need as followers of Christ. And secondly, why do we experience trials? Well, that we may share that we may share this comfort with who? Others. See, there's a tremendous learning and growing experience that we gain personally when we go through times of difficulty and trials. But as we experience God coming alongside us in strength and comfort, it's also that we can now come alongside others in their times of trial. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable. He comforts us so that we can be comforters of others and come alongside them in, in their time of, of hurting or adversity and be able to say, man, I know what this is like. I felt the pressing in my life. I've experienced tribulations that, that God has allowed in so that I might grow and experience his comfort. And now I get to share that with you. We can come alongside others and let them know God is still good and God's faithful, and he's gonna bring you through. We don't have to worry or fret or fear 
over what's taking place because I've seen God take me through times of pressing and he's brought me through for the better. He's refined me, he's strengthened me, and yeah, he's comforted me. And he wants to do that in your life. We get to come alongside others to comfort them. That's what Paul says here, that we may be able to comfort those who are in, and notice this, who are in any trouble. We don't have to look at what somebody's going through and go, hmm, I've actually never really experienced what they're experiencing right now. I better, I better not step in and help. I don't, I don't know what to, what to do. Listen, have you experienced the comfort of God? Then you get to speak into their life and say, you know what? God still loves you. He's good. And he wants to meet you where you're at to comfort you. He's done that to me. Oh, I may not know exactly the pain of what you're going through, but I've experienced pain. I've experienced the pressing and God was with me. God is good. Look to him. Be comforted by him. Whatever trouble they're in, with the comfort that we ourselves are comforted by God. That's what we get to do. You see, our suffering, like what those Greeks experienced when they went through calamity thinking their gods are punishing them, our suffering is not punishment for something we've done, it's rather equipping us for something we have yet to do. And that is to come alongside and minister to others in the way that Jesus has ministered to us in our time of need. And you see God's method, sometimes of comforting us, is through other people. And so I encourage you, let others in to the pain and the adversity you're going through. So often because of our pride, we're like, no, I'm gonna, I don't want anybody to know. I don't really know what I'm going through. I don't want, uh. and we sometimes fail to experience the comfort that God will bring us to another person because we don't want to be vulnerable. Well, I pray that we'll be those that, you know, truly live in community here, which means we're going to be open. We're going to be vulnerable. We're going to be honest with one another and let people in when we're hurting. Say, man, I, I need someone to, to just share with me and remind me of the goodness of God here and the comfort that he, he brings. Let others, let God minister to you through others. Paul goes on to say in verse five, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now the New Living Translation puts it this way, for the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. That word consolation is the same word as comfort. We think of consolation today as like, kind of like the runner-up prize, right? You know, like uh, beauty pageant, you know, the consolation prize is like, well, you weren't the top, but you get, you know, or in a sporting event, a team or a, a, a player that doesn't make it to the, you know, championship rounds, they go into the consolation rounds. It's kind of like, well, you know, you lost, but we're still gonna, you know, kind of give you something. And we can think of that sometimes to go, what does that mean here? Does it mean that, uh, when we're suffering that we're losing out? No, not the case at all. On the contrary, you're actually gaining. We're getting filled more of the Lord, more of his blessing, more of his love, kindness, and comfort. And it's through suffering that we become more aware of the comfort God is and always has been. So though 
the sufferings of Christ abound in us, it just allows the comfort of God to become all the more evident in our lives. Don't freak out. Don't worry when you're going through adversity as though God doesn't love you. God's saying, oh no, I love you so much that I'm gonna do a work in you that's gonna allow you to be more greatly strengthened and be used of me in even greater ways ministering to others. How sweet that is. And we see the strength and weakness. Now we've seen comfort and suffering. Now in verse six, we see the strength and weakness. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Now many of the critics of Paul and these false apostles that had moved into the church at Corinth were trying to put themselves in this better position than Paul, right? They're, they're, they're trying to show the church, listen, oh, we got it together. We got healthy lives, man. Our families are, are, are good. They're in line. Our bank accounts are solid. But look at Paul, man. He's a mess. Look at that guy. How could God be at work in him with all the suffering that he's going through? And they were hoping to use Paul's suffering to disqualify and discredit him as an apostle. But again, Paul reveals that whatever he may go through, it's working out a greater work in others. And this is what God does. God doesn't need strength to show strength. He shows strength in weakness, which reveals his greatness all the more. And he takes people that are broken, people that are, are going through trials and pressing and tribulations to reveal his work in a way that he gets all the glory for it. And Paul recognizes his affliction was simply to help others. Listen, if you want to live your whole life free from pain, you must either become a god or a corpse. <laughs> it's one or the other. <laughs> Consider other men's troubles and that will comfort yours. And when Paul shared the comfort he received from God in his affliction, it comforted others all the more. And lastly, verse seven, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. Worship team, I'm gonna invite you to come up in this last minute we've got and do, if you can do a shorter song, great. I wanna close with this song because it's a good song. But notice Paul says, our hope for you is steadfast, it's confident. Paul's saying, we know that even though you go through sufferings and trials, we don't lose hope in that. No, our, our hope is steadfast, it's confident because we know what this is gonna result in if we allow God to come alongside us with that comfort that he desires to give that strengthens us and builds us up so we might grow from these experiences and move on in greater ministry in and through him. Confident, our hope is strong that though you experience suffering, you're gonna also reap the comfort of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you are the God of all comfort. And I think of those here today that perhaps are here with heavy hearts. Maybe they're grieving, maybe they're going through adversity and suffering that's been heavy upon them. But I pray today, God, they would encounter the God of all comfort that encourages and strengthens and lifts them up from the place that they're in to see, God, that you are faithful, you're good, you love them, and you desire the best for them. And sometimes through that pressing, 
it brings about greater fruit. So I pray that you'd do that work in our lives and cause us to be ministers, to see that what you've done in our lives is meant to be passed on to others.